Good morning. Happy New Year. Hi, everybody. Glad to see you. Everybody looks so perky, ready to go. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So says the writer of the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I love this passage as we think at the start of this new year about being faithful in every season of family life. You know, whether we are in the thick of it, surrounded by and raising kids or caring for aging parents, or whether we are in kind of a lean season of aloneness. We are all members of families, and God's word has so much wisdom to give us. God's word tells us that family life is good, but that family life is hard. And that family life demands faith because it has a whole bunch of different seasons, and each season demands a different kind of faith. So we need faith at the beginning, all kinds of beginnings in family life. And Eric Linz is going to be here next week to talk about that, the beginning of family. And then Brian will be here to talk about kind of that long slog in the middle of family life where we're just making it all happen or not making it all happen. And Doug will be here at the end of this series to talk about what it looks like in transitions and endings of family life. And here's what I know, no matter what season you're in, in the midst of it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in the midst of all of our efforts to be faithful, the biggest truth we need to hang on to is that God is faithful to us. Just like we sang in this new song Katie introduced, our confidence is God's faithfulness. That's where our confidence lies. So we're going to spend four weeks all of January in this important series, and I encourage you to be here for all of these teachings. And if you can't be, uh, I really encourage you to watch online because I think they're going to be powerful. So today I want to start on a real high note uh, for the year. I want to talk about failure. Failure in our families. I mean, how do we fail and get back up? What does that look like? How do we forgive each other in our families when we fail each other? And how do we forgive ourselves? How is God faithful to us when we fail? What does that look like? And how do we move past regret? 
And yes, we will go to the scriptures to try to find some answers to those questions, but we first will go to the Bible to be reminded that in our families, we are not alone when we fail. The very first family, Adam and Eve, if you remember, had a real dust up in the garden, didn't they? They failed. It, 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 it impacted all of us for all eternity. They blamed each other and then they tried to hide from God. Then one of their sons killed the other in a fit of jealousy and then ran away. Hello, first family. Welcome to the Bible. Noah, the great hero, saved his family and all the animals from the flood and then appeared to get drunk and naked all at the same time. It's in there. Read it. And when one of his sons, who he smartly named Ham, I encourage you to think about that for your next son, mocked his dad for getting drunk. And so Noah cursed him. So there's that. When God promised Abram and Sarah a child well past the ripe old childbearing age of 70, Abram couldn't wait on God. And so he decided to have a child with his slave, Hagar, who then made fun of Sarah, Nana Nana Boo Boo, for not being able to get pregnant. So Sarah had both Hagar and her son Ishmael booted from the family, the young and the restless. We're not even out of the first 10 chapters of Genesis. King Solomon, this is later, whom the Bible calls the wisest of the wise, apparently had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Parents, there's a word to put on the kids' spelling test concubine apparently the first episode of sister wives so if you're in a family that feels like a failure sometimes apparently it's biblical so welcome welcome truth is and we all know this we each come out of our own family system the family that we were born into and each family system is functional and dysfunctional in its own way then if we get married or join a circle of friends that feels like a family we all put all of our function and dysfunction together in one great happy pile and make a new family filled with function and dysfunction all of its own it's so fun my favorite Christmas card ever was when this good friends of ours sent their family picture and all it said on it was Merry Christmas and then they put this I put our picture up there for fun we put the fun in dysfunctional I thought that was awesome so there I am once again embarrassing my children Um, okay take that down here's what I want to say the family is God's little workshop of failure and forgiveness the family is God's little workshop of failure and forgiveness And I don't mean to downplay the seriousness of family failure. I mean, failure often has consequences, some of them very serious and lasting. Many of us know this by experience. But failure can also be a gift. It can be a chance to grow if we humbly accept it as such. Because here's the truth, much of our family life is meant to humble us. And if if we too often expect it to be something more than that, we will be sorely disappointed. I remember how many strong and shocking emotions, both both positive and negative, marriage brought up in me. 
I mean, I was so shocked by it. But then those emotions were only overshadowed by the huge swings of emotion that parenthood brought up in me. Holy smokes. You know that image we often see of a sweet new mom in a white nighty rocking a perfect non-crying, non-pooping, non-colicky newborn baby in this perfectly clean home with kind of like a filtered light? Boy, are we rooked. Where's the picture a decade later of that same mom in her little mom van with three kids, all who need to go to different places for soccer practice. You're already running late. You're halfway there. And one kid announces, I I forgot my shin guard. And you have to go back home and you turn around and you're just like, where's that picture? (laughs) Our greatest emotions. You guys know this is true of love, warmth, and belonging, those happen most often in our families. I felt that this past Christmas, because it's happening less and less and less, all five of us, Chuck and the three kids, were gathered around the fire one night, and we were talking, and we were laughing, and we were telling stories about each other in a way that only people who have committed to each other for 20 to 25 years can do. And there was just this moment where my heart just wanted to burst. I was so happy. And then in that exact same week, there were moments when I thought, who are all these people in my house? And when are they leaving? Tomorrow? Not soon enough. They make me cry. They make me mad. Why do they have so many shoes? They make me crazy. Can I get an amen from anyone else? I mean, only in our families do we have these wild swings of so much love and so much stress. So this week, I was reading uh, the, the Psalms. I was reading Psalm 73. I'm just kind of working my way through. And I was reading Psalm 73 out loud one morning, which annoys my dog, but it's a great way to read the Psalms. I encourage you to try it. And I read this verse, Psalm 23, verse 26. I was thinking about this teaching, and I read this. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail. And the psalmist here was probably talking about his literal flesh, his aging body, and his literal heart, and how they may fail, but God is his strength. But I think we can also see this passage as referring to general human failure in our families, when our outside selves fail, and when our inside selves, our hearts fail each other. And so it speaks to our topic today. And it tells us that when our flesh and our heart fail, that God is the strength of our heart. And how is he our strength? Because that's a nice concept, but how is he our strength? And I just want to talk about three ways that God through Jesus can be the strength of our heart. First one is that Jesus is our strength because he overcomes for us. Jesus overcomes for us. You see, all of us, no matter what our family structure looks like, we live on this spectrum of function and dysfunction, somewhere on this spectrum. And some families' dysfunction is more fun than other families. 
and some dysfunction, whether it was from your family of origin or happening right now in your family, is really damaging. I mean, it's crippling and can be debilitating. But nothing is beyond the experience of Jesus. Nothing that you have gone through or will go through in your family is beyond the experience of Jesus. He was betrayed by those he loved the most. He was almost always misunderstood by his own family. And he was dishonored by his hometown. He was neglected by his friends at his moment of greatest need. He was turned over to his enemies by one who was as close to him as a brother. And he became the scapegoat of all of those he came to save. There is no family pain that is beyond the experience of Jesus. And nothing that any of us go through in our families is beyond the healing, restoring reach of Jesus. You understand this? No failure, no betrayal, no pain is beyond Jesus' ability to reach out and to grasp it from us and to overcome it on our behalf. In the Gospel of John, uh, before Jesus was betrayed, the very end of chapter 16, he's talking to his disciples and he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world, and that means in our families, you will have trouble. It's just true. We will fail and have trouble. But take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome, and that word means I have overpowered, I have victory over the world, over your troubles, over your failures. Jesus overcomes for us. And this is why those who put their trust in Jesus can have hope, even when we fail. Even when we're failed on by other people. This is why we can live differently from a bitter, divisive, name-calling world. Or at least we should. This is why the fact that we follow Jesus who is an overcomer, this is why we don't have to drown in a river of our own regret or hold grudges against people in our families for our entire lives. Jesus has overcome even our failure. Jesus has overcome even our broken hearts. And the fact, this is a fact, this is a truth, the fact that Jesus has overcome the trouble of this world, including our deepest family failures, can make us strong of heart because our failure never has the last word. Jesus overcomes for us, but Jesus also intercedes for us in our families and in our failure. I told a friend this week that I was praying for her. And she said to me, that's good because I can't pray for myself anymore. And I said, that is why I will pray for you. 
This is so powerful. How do I know? Because I have had friends who've done it for me, who've prayed for me when I was too weak. So get this. If having a friend pray for you when you can't pray for yourself is powerful, how much more powerful is it to know that every day and every night, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you ask for it or not, whether you deserve it or not, Jesus is interceding, which means he's pleading on our behalf before the Father for us. Romans 8, verse 34. Paul writes, who then is, who then is the one who condemns? Who, who condemns a follower of Christ? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that. Jesus didn't just die, he says. He was raised to life. He is, what he means is he is currently at the right hand of God and is also interceding, pleading on our behalf for us. When you are drowning in your own tears, when your hopelessness washes over you like a tsunami, when you hurt those you love the most or are hurt by them, when you think about your family and you cannot lift your eyes to heaven one more time, no matter how your heart or your flesh have failed in the life of your family, Jesus is on his knees for you. This knowledge should make us strong of heart. Jesus overcomes and he intercedes and he also corrects us. Jesus corrects us. See, God is a God of comfort. But here's the real hard truth. For some of us this morning, God may have sharp words to say to us about our own role in some relational failure or in a family failure. Because like a good parent, God disciplines those he loves. In, in, in the book of Hebrews, kind of chapter 12, kind of verse 5 and, and the part of 6, it says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son, as a child. And God provides his discipline and correction most often, not always, not only, but most often through his word, what we call the living word, because we believe that God actively and personally and in a timely fashion communicates through it to us, to his children. And And the truth of the matter is, if we aren't regularly reading his word, even just reading the daily scripture through the Orchard website, if we aren't, we have absolutely no idea how he wants us to live. And we are refusing to give his word the chance 
to break through the shell of our own denial and to offer us a strong, loving course correction. I don't know if you've experienced this before. I have about one billion times because God's got so much work to do. Here's just one example. Chuck and I sometimes get in a power struggle. It used to happen a lot more in our early years of marriage when we thought we had something to battle about. Now we're just too tired. I'm like, you win. I'm tired. <laughs> over, we battled over really important questions, like who's working the hardest? Who's more tired? Whose work is more important? Who's right on any given issue? Who sweated more and worked harder at spin class? And these are critical questions that must be answered. And so a scripture that cut me to the quick a few years back applies to this power struggle and also almost to all of the the rest of my life. But let's say just especially to, to, to our marriage. This is what Jeremiah 45 verse 5 said. I wrote it differently on my notes. It says, should you then seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. I read that one morning on my porch. I felt literally like God if he could have been, was standing on my porch looking at me and saying, should you then seek great things for yourself, Alice? Question mark. Do not seek them. What a powerful little course correction God gave me through that word. And he continues to give me through that one little verse. I start ramping up on somebody, usually my husband. This verse comes to mind, just shuts me right down. Because I can get a little sassy. God's word is powerful in this way, my friends. It is like a surgeon's scalpel. It cuts right into the place in our hearts where sin resides and wreaks havoc on our lives and our families if it is left unchecked. I need that kind of surgery. Don't you? But God's word, if it is unopened, is like a scalpel with no surgeon. Absolutely powerless to fix what is broken. When our heart and our flesh fail, God is the strength of our heart. Because Jesus overcomes for us, he intercedes for us. And if we allow him, he corrects us. The other half of Psalm 73 verse 26 says that though our flesh and our heart may fail, God is the strength of our heart and he's also my portion forever. God is our portion, which is also so relevant to this message this morning. But first of all, what does it mean? What does it mean that God is our portion? Is this like some kind of Weight Watchers terminology? Like everybody just gets a small slice of God? What does this mean? That God is our portion means that only God can satisfy the hunger in our souls. See, and the deepest hunger in our souls, so the great writers about the soul tell us, is for the voice of God to speak to us of his unconditional love in such a personal way that it is as if he's calling our name. Alice. Doug. 
That's what we need. That is how God is our portion. And our problem is that too often we try to find that kind of love, the love we can only receive from God. Too often we demand to receive it from those who are closest to us. Our parents, our spouses, our children, our friends who are as close to us as family. And we demand it from them, but the truth is they can never provide it for us. Only God can provide the unconditional personal love that calls us by name that we so yearn for. And when we demand it from and we ask it from the people in our family, we burden them with a weight they cannot bear. And they crumble and we crumble and our families crumble. Other human beings, even those we love the most, can never be our portion. Only God can be our portion. And so no matter what stage of family life you're in, whether you're in a good season or you're in a free fall, what needs to happen is that every single one of us needs to move closer and closer and closer to God and to learn more and more powerfully how we can receive this kind of unconditional love from God so that we don't demand it from the people we love the most. This is why we exist as a church. This is why we offer the kinds of programs and groups and experiences Carla talked about. I mean, that starting point experience, that conversation about faith, I took part in it last this fall. And it is one of the most powerful ways I've experienced in a while for letting God's love wash over me. Only God can be our portion. One last thing, and then I'm going to close. What do I do with regret? What do I do with that horrifying realization that I wish I wouldn't have made that choice? And now I'm reaping the consequences and I don't know how to fix it. And it just haunts me. I felt regret earlier this week. It felt a little bit like one of those dreams where the walls are just closing in around you till they're about to squish you. And I let it eat away at my soul for a night because that's what regret does. It's a little bit like termites, just eats you up from the inside out. And then I remembered, I know what I'm supposed to do with this. I know where I need to go to get help. So I pushed, pulled, and dragged my regret. You know those used car advertisements? Push, pull, or drag your really crappy piece of equipment in and we'll give you $1,500. That's what I did. Push, pulled, and dragged my regret to the foot of Jesus Christ. The foot of Jesus' cross. Because I know that is the only place where I can put my regret down and find a way to walk away from it and not carry it like an overburdened backpack of despair for the rest of my life. And so first, I confessed my stupidity and my sin that I felt regret about. Jesus wasn't shocked. And I remembered that he loves 
a contrite heart. He loves humble, honest people who come to him and say, I failed. I sinned. I need your help. And then he figuratively held out his nail-pierced hands and he said to me in my spirit, give me your regret. Give it to me. Because I'm the only one strong enough to take it for you, but first you have to peel your tight little claws off of it because it's killing you. And I need you to trust me enough to let it go and leave it here and to walk away. And so I did. And from that one little regret, and, and I know some of us have real big ones, I... I was able to walk away. I was free, and I was free to go make amends as best I could. And the truth is, you guys, some of you need to do this this morning. And you know you need to do this. Because regret about something in your past with your family is killing you. And you keep thinking it's your job to carry it around. Like it's some kind of penance or penalty. What a waste. What a waste of your days. Just get to the cross. You can do this right during communion. Tell Jesus in real words what your regret is about. He won't be shocked. And then look into his face and see the love that nailed him to the tree. And ask him if his sacrifice is big enough to take care of your failure and your sin. The answer is in his eyes. The answer is in his blood. The answer is in his dying words. It is finished then uncurl your tightly clenched fists and hand him that big old bag of regret. Trust him enough to leave it there and go make amends as best you can so you can be free and other people can be free. We can live beyond regret in our families. Jesus' cross makes it so. So I'm going to invite the ushers to go back and, and get ready with the elements. But And I'm not going to give you a ton of instruction about what to do right now. I, I believe God, through his spirit, not in like a magical way, but just in a way so that you know right deep in your heart what kind of business you need to do with him. He'll instruct you what to do during this time. Like Carla said, they'll bring the elements. If you're on this journey of following Jesus, take take the bread, take the juice, do business with God. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed by his closest friends, he took the Passover bread And after he gave thanks to his father, he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Broken for all the ways you're going to fail, 
all the regret and shame you're ever going to feel. This is broken for you. And then in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the wine of a new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let me pray. God, it is in our families that we experience the greatest joy. And it is in our families that we experience the greatest pain, betrayal, and failure. And often the greatest regret. Your cross, your son, the living, resurrected Christ, is the answer to all of our failures and our regrets. May your people, Jesus, right now, step into the presence of your son and let his love, grace, mercy, and correction wash over them in a powerful way through your spirit. Amen.